Please be seated. So our journey to Jerusalem with Jesus continues this week with his addressing Galilean concerns over sacrificial purity and concerns over victims of disaster and also the reality of grace in the face of it all through the telling of the parable of the fig tree. And again, we're drawn to discover this journey we are on is as much an inward journey to the source of our own life as it is an outward journey toward a memorial of Jesus' death and resurrection. And the issue at stake in this first example of the Galileans whose blood Pilate mingled with sacrificial blood and what is at stake in the story of the 18 people who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, the issue is whose fault was it? Who is to blame? And there was an understanding, a broad understanding at, at the time, which many of us carry whether we know it or not, understanding that if something bad happens to you, you must have done some deserve it. You must have done something wrong. And Jesus says, in effect, don't be ridiculous. It is silly to assume that because these disasters happened to some, that they were worse sinners than anyone else in Jerusalem. These things happen. But Jesus doesn't leave us there with wondering if this is really a biblical commentary on tort law or simply feeling let off the hook for our own shortcomings or even feeling slightly slightly at sea as though there's no real justice in this world. Anyway, why do bad things happen to good people? Now, Jesus points his hearers then and his hearers today back to the source of all life. He says, unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. How come? I thought stuff just happened. Is Jesus saying we better figure out our own wrongdoings and confess them and somehow please God if we don't want to become extras in a divinely directed disaster movie? And the answer is yes, that's right. If we understand repentance to be about confessing and enumerating our wrongdoings and sins, amending our lives, living with moral purity and rectitude, etc. from now on. But that seems to be a pretty small understanding of repentance and, and not a really, it seems a rather petty understanding of God uh, if we're really listening. God who will wreak havoc on us if we don't do right. But what if repentance is something much bigger than listing our wrongdoings? Think for a moment about Job. Remember the patience of Job? Job was anything but patient. He had lost in some divine game, he had lost everything. He lost his farm and his sheep and his land and his cattle and his children and his family. And he railed against the injustice of the Lord of the universe. And he had friends, and his friends kept saying, come on, Job, think about it. You must have done something wrong to deserve this. And he says, no, I have not. I am a righteous man. I have not done anything to deserve such suffering. And Job keeps insisting on his own righteousness. And so one day he's sitting under his tree, railing against the Lord of the universe and the vicissitudes of the world. And he's angry at his own loss and heartbreak, and he's angry at God. And God finally speaks to Job. And God says, gird up your loins. I will question you, and you shall declare to me, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Who has cut a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt? And after chapter after chapter of this devastating defense and declaration, Job, feeling small, perhaps, finally responds. 
And he says, now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job's repentance was not about confessing wrongdoing. It was about recognizing the Lord of the universe and recognizing that he, Job, was not God. And Job turned again, seeing what really mattered for life, the very source of his life, the same one whom Moses encountered in his state of oppression and slavery. He says, who shall I say sent me? I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent you. This is the God whose very name is hard to articulate. It leads the Jewish tradition to the Jewish tradition of never actually articulating the name of God, a tradition I envy whenever I see a bumper sticker or a billboard reducing the creator of all that is to a slogan. It's part of how we try and manage God. So our repentance... It's about our wrongdoings, yes, as pointers to the fact that we have lost touch with the source of our life. When we say a confession here, we don't leave a long time between the call to confession and the saying of the confession because no time is long enough for us to enumerate our wrongdoings. That's not what we're doing. We are turning again to the source of our life, remembering that we are not God. And so the ritual purity types were trying to govern God by insisting on the right and best and proper way of doing things. And the Tower of Siloam types were worried about the rules that meant that they wouldn't be subject to such a terrible fate. And to both of them, Jesus says that right relationship is something that can only happen in relationship and not in the mechanisms we use to manage our relationships, to keep God small in effect. I was made aware of this in new <clears throat> some meetings I was attending this week, and as often comes up when clergy gather, there's talk about the glass ceiling that women experience in our church. And I thought about how in recent years we've had some, seen a number of women called as rector in large parishes like this one, and every single one of them that I know about has ended badly. And there was conversation about in these meetings, and one chap recommended a book called What Works for Women at Work by Joan Williams. And it's a pretty devastating critique, critique of workplace bias. And most of us do not think we work in, live in workplace-biased institutions, but statistics tell us we're wrong. And we have lots of things that we don't see, and there need to be strategies for sorting it out. And that's for another time in another class. But I start thinking about what we did to these women whose jobs didn't work out. We said... We said they didn't do right, or it didn't work because they weren't a cultural fit for the parish. And that's one of the things we do over and over, is blame the victim. Just like the people in Jesus' time, talking about the Galileans whose blood was mingled, or the people whose tower fell on them. Blame the victim. If you suffered, it must be your fault. And as long as I can say that, then I'm okay, because it's not about me. It's one of the ways we manage. And Jesus says, no, don't do that. There are, of course, real victims in this world who need compassion and care and support. And, and it's also true that when we adopt the identity of a victim as a means of seeking sympathy, that we never have to change, and we never have to learn, and we never have to seek healing, and we never have to progress. And we think we can claim sympathy indefinitely. That's a problem, too. But one reading of the intractability of the peace process in the Middle East is that everyone believes 
their party to be the victimized party in need of sympathy and protection. It's, it's not something that's going to change until that changes. And that change, in a sense, begins with us. So how do we think about that? These mechanisms that are unconscious about how we manage in life. So let's look again at the fig tree. The fig tree follows immediately on the stories of these hapless victims. We tend to think about God as the owner of the vineyard, the owner of the fig tree. And it's God who's talking about Israel, saying if Israel doesn't do right, then Israel's going to be uprooted. So Israel, do right so you're not uprooted. But what if, that sounds very human. That sounds like a human thing. What if God isn't the owner? What if God is the gardener? And the gardener does something different. God says, cut it down. But the gardener says to the human with all the rules, wait, let's give this victim a chance. Let's give a little time here for the broken person to become more of the person they were created to be. Not just a barren person, but a fruitful and generative and fecund person. Could this not be a parable of astounding grace for us in our sinful and broken world? And so the gardener is tending each of us and the recognition that there is manure in this life. Manure happens. <laughs> and it reminds us to repent. Reminds us to recognize who we are. Who we're created to be. And can we learn that again on our journey to Jerusalem? Brothers and sisters, our stories today are the Lord of the universe calling us to life. In the midst of our journey toward Calvary with Jesus. There is grace. There is time to remember again that we are not God, but the love who made us for love holds us beloved and wants us to thrive and calls us to repent and to remember who and whose we are. So in our customary silence, let us respond to the gospel with gratitude once again for God's grace, God's love, God's mercy, even when life deals us grievous blows. In silence and in response to the gospel, let us pray.